and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator. Joining me today are Roger Aliaga-Diaz, Global Head of Portfolio Construction at Vanguard, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Asset Allocator Sister Title Investors Chronicle. Good morning both, and thank you for joining me. Good morning. Roger, a lot of the premise behind uh, the life strategy range of Vanguard and indeed many other multi-asset products is based on the premise that bonds and equities are inversely correlated, but that correlation discipline seems to have broken down over the past decade. There was a long period where they, they both rose and then in 2022, as we all know to our cost, they both fell. Has that posed a challenge for, for you when it comes to portfolio construction? No, it definitely does. Um, because um, obviously the diversification, right? Portfolio diversification, this this uh, uh, basically uncorrelated movement of stocks and bonds is kind of the foundation of of the 60-40 and, and portfolio construction in general. And as you say, like we saw that disappear in a whim when, when the inflation spike came and, and central banks start basically rising rates to, to fight inflation. Um, now, the, the, the couple of things there um, that we try to put that event in context is uh, what happened versus what may happen towards the future, right? Because we don't see that um, uh, breaking of correlations as a permanent regime going forward. So certainly that event 2022 was, was very... Uh, uh, harmful for the 60-40, like for example, uh, here in the UK, the life strategy lost almost 12% in that year. In the US, similar portfolios lost 16% in, in, in dollar terms, right? Uh, but on a forward-looking basis, uh, we think that the correlation may be restored as central banks finally get a hold on inflation um, and uh, with interest rates perhaps at a higher level, but uh, but the correlation, the co-movement basically it goes back down to 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 normal, right? Mm. David, um, I know you've been you've been thinking about this this question a bit as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting, um, I suppose, difference in opinion among allocators at the minute. You know, some I think there's a very strong argument that six to forty is revived now with the kind of bond sell-off we saw, and I've even spoken to allocators um, in recent months who argue that now actually the 60-40 portfolio should almost be the other way around. So 60 in, <laughs> in bonds and 40 in equities because you're getting this lovely, you know, almost rate free levels, yeah. you know, yield and, right. and so on. But, but then on the other hand, you have, um, you've had such a related sell-off in alternative assets of many different stripes, whether it's infrastructure, private equity, all, all sorts of things. Um, I guess one thing I was wondering was, would anything ever tempt... Vanguard kind of shift into the alternative space. You know, I suppose plenty of rivals do that as maybe looking for further diversification beyond just kind of bonds versus equities. Yeah, I mean the um, kind of the, the premise of the of the simplicity of, of the life strategy funds and and, and the sixty forty portfolios is basically that um, a cost efficiency. From one perspective, uh, so in terms of, of turnover, it's not just like fees, right? It's even the, the cost of, of managing the portfolio, that cost efficiency translates to to investor returns, from a, even from a tax perspective, for example, mm. um, as well, right? Um, 
and then and then uh, in addition to that is is also the the idea of harvesting this risk premium, right? That that it's there basically equity premium and and, and duration premium. Um, in in terms of of alternatives, definitely there there are. Uh, alternative sources of diversification, no question. If you look at the correlation of commodities, for example, commodities diversified both stocks and and and, and bonds. Um, the the issue with that is that um, we never know um, what's the right mix for what type of investors. So, for example, in an advice context, you can definitely tailor a portfolio where you will include private equity, you will inclu include commodities, depending on the risk appetite and, and the goals or the particular goals of the investor. When you have a generic portfolio that, that is basically uh, uh, like large-scale or large, large mass of investors are investing, you don't know exactly what are the levels of risk tolerance um, and the level of understanding of those alternatives. That's where you go more for this core default um, stone bond mixes, right? Uh, but that's not to say that advisors, for example, we see that that a lot, they they would use this portfolio as a core position mm. and then combine it with in a satellite approach with, with other commodities. As they know their clients, they can actually tailor, bring in a, an active manager, bring an alternative fund perhaps, and do uh, a sort of combinations because, yeah, over, definitely from a diverse, pure diversification perspective is, is, is an alternative source of diversification. Mm. Thank you. And one of the things that I think David and I get in our inbox a lot or, or hear from people in the industry a lot is um, this desire to push into private equity or unquoted equities, certainly the low interest rate regime that we had for a decade maybe allowed a lot of companies to stay private for longer. Has that impacted how you how you think about equity allocations? Have you been tempted by that part of the market? Yeah, we've been we've been looking into that um, more from a research perspective, not as much from a life strategy product perspective at, at this point. Um, but in the US, for example, uh, Vanguard launched a private equity offer available to, to uh, ultra high networks and certain segments. So from an asset allocation perspective, from a portfolio construction has been an interesting problem to see how you build a portfolio when you have an asset like private equity that, that is uh, illiquid, that uh, it has capital calls and distributions that are almost random, right? So you don't, you don't control how much you are invested. So basically, uh, uh, market movement can actually leave you over-invested or under-invested um, in private equity. Um, and also, basically, you, it's, it's difficult to rebalance, for example. So, so normal things that you will do in any stock bond portfolio with private equity, you have to really keep track of, of those flows, right? Uh, because otherwise, um, you, the risk profile of the portfolio would quickly shift and morph into something that you it was not intended, right? So we literally work all the math to, to see, okay, how do you do a, a mean variance optimization when you have a private equity given the liquidity characteristics and all that? Um, and, and there is a way to do it, but again, you have to keep track of those of those things, right? Um, uh, how much uh, uh, invested was basically the the capital calls and and what you're gonna do? What are the buffers you have to um, to manage when when basically you are in a situation that the market tanks and perhaps private equity now is like from ten it happens to be twenty percent of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's, uh, it's important to think about the the risk characteristics. Um, the other interesting of private equity is the the, the data, right, the, the data that we get is self-reported 
self-appraised by the private equity managers, managers. and that's something again that uh, as, as, as asset allocators we need to kind of adjust the data by the fact that um, it's not mark-to-market data. So you in the equity market, in the market you have like minute to minute, sure. and, and that basically shows in volatility of the of the prices. Um, many people talk about private equity as a diversifier, just because the data looks smooth. And I mm. say like, don't don't be fooled by that. I mean, if I <laughs> if I had to price my own house right, and I give you a price per month, doesn't mean that mm. I'm not seeing a lot of volatility on that housing asset. Sure. Same with private equity, right? So there are statistical methods to kind of inflate back the variance, inflate the volatility, bring it back. So we do that too. And then we bring it back to the portfolio. Uh, and it still looks good, uh, especially when rates were, were the lowest, as you were saying before. Um, now, of, of course, we turns a little bit lower, but uh, but it's not as much as you would think if, if the volatility was uh, mm. as low as, as the self-reported data. Yes. Show. Sure. And, and does the, I suppose more generally, does the kind of, if we're now having to get ourselves used to this kind of era of, higher rates, or at least, you know, a decent chunk higher than what they used to be, say, a few years ago. Um, what kind of effect does that have on how you guys would think about the portfolios and your kind of set allocations and so on? Yeah, yeah that, that's a great question, because uh, even from the economic, the outlook perspective, we mm-hmm. think that we're not, it's unlikely that we're going back to the to the pre-COVID era of, of, of low rates, right? So, so these, these high rates are here to stay, I mean, it's difficult to say where, what's the right level, but e- even when central banks bring inflation back down to, to their targets, we think that they, they won't be able to get back to to those low rates, uh, even from a policy perspective. And that's exactly the post question, even for medium and long-term portfolios, which is kind of the horizon we, we talk about. Um, that tends to probably, uh, first of all, enhance the, the spectral returns significantly, right? So just from, from that perspective, um, compared to the 2010s, we used to talk about this low return environment, right? Uh, uh, I think that that it is over. You get more returns out of the portfolio thanks to these these, these higher interest rates. Uh, so it's not great for the economy, but it's really great for for, for investors actually. Um, and then, of course, if if um, once is willing to um, uh, move the portfolio a little bit, uh, certainly. In some of the allocations that we call time variant allocations, for example, it tends to shift um, a little bit towards towards bonds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these higher rates probably leaves some equity markets a little bit overvalued, uh, particularly the U.S. For example, mm-hmm. uh, we see that uh, we do this comparison against against the level of rates to to assess the valuation, um, and and given that we we, we see the market is still um, even though. With all the correction and we're like net nine percent down from 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 twenty twenty one, right? But still, is is twenty percent overvalued relative to to what interest rates are in the US. So uh, you have a compressed equity premium and you have really high high yields on on the fixed income side that, as you say, are probably going to stay for 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 quite a while, mm. and that tends normally to to shift towards bonds a little bit the portfolio. And, and does that leave you guys more comfortable with, I suppose? particularly if you look at life strategy, one thing that has kind of distinguished it from some other kind of, you know, passive core portfolios is the um, lesser weighting to the US relative to your kind of, um, a lot of your average global trackers. Does that mean that, you, yeah, you guys are more comfortable with that positioning now or how? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we normally um, look at the home bias um, in the equity side, um, um, on a local 
market perspective. So we have a certain combines for US portfolios, right? Uh, of, co- of course, for the UK. Um, so it's a mix of, of, of outlook of equities, but also local preferences um, and uh, how investors uh, approach uh, uh, local investing. In theory, in theory, we would like to have market cap for equities. We basically know home bias. And you could argue almost that's almost the final destination we work towards. But uh, but we we do recognize uh, the home bias. There are behavioral aspects. There are basically um, and, and other basically uh, local uh, currency issues that may um, have people to have overinvest a little bit in the in the domestic market. Um, but yeah, in, in the case in the in the case of the of the uh, UK, we, we have these home bias because of those preferences. Turns out that given the US. Uh, equity outlook, it, it works uh, in our favor, but I wouldn't say that that's the main reason we do it. It's, it's more about this uh, home bias discussion, right? Um, we we have in the mall portfolio space where we kind of are mirroring the life strategy uh, funds. We have a version in which is with more market cap because we we cater to different preferences there, and we're not more nimble. We can be more nimble there in the mall portfolio space, for example. So we. We toggle between that home bias level and, and that market cap mm. approach. And the fact that there are seven stocks in the US which have performed quite well this year become a big part of the US index and are becoming an increasingly big part of the global index. What challenge does that pose for you as a portfolio constructor? Yeah, well, uh, it's really... We look at it from the growth versus value perspective. Um, um, and definitely after a year in which basically there was a realignment of raw value um, um, to a point where we almost were saying that, that, that the, the, uh, they were back in line with each other, we're back to that um, state in which basically growth is overvalued. So m- m- much of that overvaluation of the US equity market I was talking about comes from from of course from those seven stocks and from the growth growth sector right um and and just is a is in this interest rate environment that we're talking about that's a critical driver of the valuation for for growth stocks versus value stock we know that that the uh, uh, the duration right the, the impact of interest rates on growth stocks is much bigger than on value um so the, the clearly there has been uh, a hype around AI um, and uh, and an idea that that the inflation problem is has been controlled faster than we thought. I think that has helped growth, but now comes the realization that these interest rates are not going anywhere. Um, and to me, that that's is where the market is going to realize this this gap between growth and value needs to resolve be resolved some way, which is going to help also bring the valuations of the U.S. equity market down. Um, when that doesn't mean that the market has to correct. We're not predicting a collapse of the market, mm-hmm. but but certainly uh, you could you, it could happen through subdued returns for equities relative to to bonds for for five years or something like that. Okay. I mean that's a an an, an, an interesting point. Um, because because while many take the view that uh, U.S. rates may have may have peaked or be be close to their peak. Um, Maybe there's an increasing awareness that while they may have peaked, they won't be cut at any time soon. Um, is that enough for value to reassert itself? That rates rates stop rising, 
but don't don't get cut. Is that enough of a market condition for value to, to outperform growth? Yeah, it, it will be one important condition. Um, of course, we we cannot discard the the uh, the emerging ride of 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 these growth stocks. These seven seven stocks you're talking about in in terms of uh, innovation, right? And 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 ability to to create new markets and and it, it's been really uh, incredible. But from a pure point of view, macro fundamentals, I, I think yes. I think um, the any asset pricing model, any any pr uh, pricing framework, will be the discounted value of the future earnings, right, at a certain interest rate. And be because these growth stocks have these like earnings way out in the future that we'll never see, <laughs> but uh, but then uh, when the interest rate uh, stays at these levels and there is no cuts, that has to basically eventually uh, catch up with with valuations. Um, that's what I think. That's going to make the realignment um, so it's more growth coming down to where value is as opposed to to the, the way around probably mm. thank you and david do you have any thoughts i suppose just one other thought that um sprung to mind is i suppose higher rates in theory brings that kind of creative destruction to markets that we've lacked in you know 10 years or so of kind of low or zero interest rates and so on mm -hmm. um does that i suppose just the thought perhaps that's one kind of um potential important development for someone like Vanguard is whether we do see the kind of much anticipated but hasn't really come resurgence of active managers and so on you know if you do see more of that dispersal I mean is that something you kind of hear much from clients or is that much of a challenge you have in terms of kind of demand for your kind of products yeah um, I mean um, it's, it's certainly I would say on the on the fixed income side um, and that's something that we've been um, showcasing all, all the active capabilities because as much as Vanguard is known for the uh, indexing mm -hmm. and, and the tracking, but on the on the special on the fixed income side, we have a lot of in-house um, uh, uh, talent and, and, and skills here. This interest rate uh, uh, environment certainly, I think, uh, opens the case for for active management. Right, um, many times. Um, what I discuss with with allocators and with advisors is like whether you should be making changes to the portfolio yourself or investing in a manager, in a professional active manager that can express those views in an active fund, right? Um, if you have a view on interest rates, uh, increasing, decreasing, okay, who, uh, what active manager can basically play in the in the rates space as, as these guys I know I work very closely with them internally in Bangor um, they're permanently looking at, at the Fed at the central banks and making making those calls right and when there are teams that specialize investment grade and high yield and so on right so it's an interesting question like um, it, there is one way to do kind of tactical asset allocation um, and do it yourself versus a more strategic core asset allocation as we were saying before and then using those active managers to express views about, about the macro. Um, so, yeah, but definitely this, back to your question, this interrate environment, I think, especially on the fixed income side, definitely uh, opens the door for, for more opportunity. Thank you for that, Roger. And thank you all for listening. I'm afraid that is all we have time for. But thank you to our guests, Roger Aliaja Diaz, Head of Portfolio Construction at Vanguard, and David Baxter, 
funds editor at Investors Chronicle. Please do remember to tune in to future editions of the Asset Allocator podcast. Thank you.